Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. People power is actually a renewable resource. Energy is contagious and people can do impossible things when they work together. And that's actually what we need to solve climate change too. Hey there, solar warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey, welcome back, Solar Warriors, to another Suncast Executive Profile. Today, I just want to thank you for lending me your ears and, of course, the only non-renewable resource you've got, and that is your time. I promise you haven't wasted it. If you're new here, thank you for giving us a chance to earn your attention. Today's guest is an entrepreneur and community builder with management experience in the Middle East, South Asia, and the United States. Steph Spears co-founded and runs Solstice, an enterprise dedicated to radically expanding the number of American households that can take advantage of clean energy using community shared solar farms. We've talked a lot lately on Suncast about the need for a more equitable and inclusive approach to solar for all households, not just homeowners. In today's discussion, Steph and I will explore this theme in depth through innovations like Solstice's Energy Score, a proprietary underwriting standard for solar customers that is both more accurate in predicting who will pay their utility bill and more inclusive of low-income Americans than FICO credit scores tend to allow. If this is the kind of conversation that you really love getting into, well, I'd like to invite you to subscribe to Suncast because if you're new here, you've just hit pay dirt. We've got almost 500 episodes with entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs, executives, founders, just like Steph, who are leading the clean energy revolution. I invite you to subscribe or go to mysuncast.com and check out the nearly 500 episodes in our back catalog. But for now, let's get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, as we tune into another powerful conversation here on Suncast. Today's going to be fun. A few accolades here at the outset for my guest, Steph Spears. She was selected as Inc. Magazine's Female Founder 100, Elle's U.S. Women Entrepreneur of the Year, a Renewable Energy World 40 Under 40 in solar, Grist 50 Fixer, more impact fellows than I can list, and an Acumen Global Fellow, which may be how you, uh, if you were unfamiliar with Steph, heard of her when, when we recently hosted a a live stream with uh, our friends, Bill Nussie and, and the Acumen folks, and that invited Steph into our world as well. She led sales and marketing for a company known as D-Light. If you're familiar with developing nations and solar over in India, she was, uh, she was working with D-Light there. Spearheaded Acumen's Renewable Energy Impact Investment Strategy in Pakistan. Trust me, the list doesn't stop. Bear with me one more moment. She developed Middle East policy as the youngest policy director at the White House National Security Council. And she managed field operations in seven states for the first Obama presidential campaign. And she's nowhere close to finish. Steph Spears, thank you for joining us on Suncast. I'm amazed that you uh, have time in your schedule to, to prioritize a little us, but thank you for being here. Thank you, Nico. You are a voice of an industry and I'm happy to be here. Oh, man. It always sort of is flattering, but really surprising and humbling when I get a chance to chat with a guest as we did in, in our pre-interview and they say, yeah, I'm a longtime listener. As someone who is quite busy myself, I struggle even often to find, to like compartmentalize how someone who's as busy as you has time for listening to podcasts. And so thank you for, again, taking the time to be with us, but also to listen to the content. Um, I do, I know that you're an infinite learner and that's one of the reasons, that's one of the things I look for in guests that we bring on the show. Steph, I feel like uh, as someone who understands how the show's sort of structured, you uh, can appreciate that we really want to give folks a, a chance to understand what drives you and where your sense of ambition, but sort of place in the world comes from. And in many cases, not all, that's rooted in family history and heritage and structure. Can you talk a bit about your upbringing, sort of where in the world it was, the nature of your family unit, and if there were any inklings early on of Steph the Entrepreneur? 
My mom will tell you that I walked around wearing diapers and would take people's spare change and put it in my diaper. And then when she went to go change my diaper, a bunch of spare change would fall out. So maybe more of a path towards uh, petty theft as opposed to entrepreneurship. But I wouldn't have predicted being an entrepreneur myself. Actually, my dad was an entrepreneur and he his business failed. And up until his business failed, things were pretty idyllic in um, the first few years of my childhood. And when his business failed, everything changed. We were suddenly eating with food stamps. Um, my dad had a hard time finding a job. My mom had to go work three minimum wage jobs to make uh, ends meet for our family. And eventually my mom took the, her three kids, all of us, and raised us herself. And so in America, it's very difficult to survive on a minimum wage salary. And as an immigrant, my mom had an accent and would get yelled at at her call center job every day to go back to her own country. So I watched her my whole life work doggedly, uh, work tirelessly to give the, her three kids a better life. And, and so I never thought of entrepreneurship as a path that we just knew that we had to you know, make our lives better so that one day we could pay her back in some way. And there's actually an Ohio State study out there that says that if you're an entrepreneur and you have a child, your child is 1.8 to three times more likely to be an entrepreneur themselves. This is, you know, that entrepreneurship is inherited in some way in culture. And Really, entrepreneurship, it, it comes in two forms. It is either by necessity, if you're an immigrant and you're starting something like a convenience store like my grandmother did, that was out of necessity. There's also the entrepreneurship out of privilege. Like if you are in a stable enough place in your life that you can take a huge risk, that it makes it easier to be an entrepreneur. And I was so lucky to have the latter be the situation. Not that I've ever had money in my life, but more that... I got a good education because my mom sacrificed for us and that gave me enough security to go on and get jobs. And those jobs made me realize that entrepreneurship isn't just about starting your own thing. It's about seeing that there's a gap in the world and thinking maybe I have a solution that can help contribute to that gap. And it's the belief in improbable things like the immigrant journey. You know, immigrants, they leave their country, they leave their their native tongue and they go out and they try to build a world that they can only imagine and not yet see. And that's a lot like entrepreneurship. So I think that Ohio State study would say that I became an entrepreneur because of my dad, when really I became an entrepreneur because I saw my mom and what she was able to create out of nothing. That was really beautiful. As I recall, you're first generation immigrant family, right? Yep. I.e., you're first generation American. Your parents were... Um, were zero generation immigrated from other countries, your mom from Korea, and I believe your dad, an adopted Korean? He was adopted from China, was born China. on a road in Laos, didn't know his own father. So somewhat questionable ethnic history there. Mm. And you grew up in, ultimately, I think you grew up in Hawaii, right? Yeah, I was born and raised in Hawaii. So mm. <laughs> pretty lucky. Talk about luck. <laughs> <laughs> well, in, in a lot of ways, right? I mean, the, 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 the magic of Hawaii is more than just the pristine beaches, but like that, it speaks to a lot of things we'll unpack today, but the spirit of Ohana, the spirit of the Hawaiian culture is deeply rooted in the idea of community. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think one of the things that is important for us to get, you know, in a, in an episode where otherwise folks can hear all the accolades and not necessarily and maybe glaze over a bit and not feel uh, as able to see like how they could be you, how they could be approachable uh, in that, in that same way. Cause you've, you've had some tremendous experiences that you've sought out in your life. You know, what I am really hoping that we can share with folks and tie the, and, and sort of thread the needle is the untold story of Steph Spears, right? The one that's not in the webinar. It's not necessarily the acumen uh, story per se, and it's around the, the sort of the discussions and solutions that I know you have experienced through the deep development work you've been uh, able to, to engage in around equity and inclusion. How did your educational experience or pathway prepare you 
for the work that you're doing now. Can we talk a bit about the milestones? Yeah. I mean, I talk about educational experience. Let's start where, where you started, which is the native Hawaiian culture in Hawaii. Growing up in Hawaii is inherently a lesson in the beauty of Hawaiian ideals. It is interesting to be born and raised in a place and know your whole life that you're actually a guest there. You're, you're not native to the land. And how do you be a good guest? Well, you, you listen and you try to learn about the ancestry of the place you're from. One of the most pervasive Hawaiian ideals is this idea of aloha aina. Aloha, most people know, it means hello, goodbye, love. Um, But it has a much deeper meaning in Hawaiian, especially when attached to aina, which means land. A culture of aloha aina is one in which you love the land, but you know that you are part of the land yourself and you only survive based on what the land gives you in terms of nourishment. Um, And there's another phrase in Hawaiian called malama aina, which means to take care of the land. And it also means to take care of that which nourishes you. So there's this Western ideal of conservation of land that is very much, let's fence it off, let's not touch it, let's just leave it be. Whereas actually the Hawaiian idea of conservation is living in harmony with the land, knowing that we only live at the behest of the land. And and uh, when you live on an island, you know that your resources are limited. You live it every day, you, you breathe it every day. And in fact, Earth is an island, but we live, we all live on an island, but we don't see it that way. And so it's so often the people of island nations that are teaching us about how to live in harmony with the environments we're in, because they know that we are affected by our environment, regardless of whether we acknowledge it or not. That's number one in the education milestone. Number two is uh, being a scholarship kid and going to private schools for high school that uh, were filled with folks who had a lot of money and, you know, living with one foot in the world of the haves and one foot at home in the world of have nots and seeing that there was very little that actually separates those two worlds outside of birth lottery and luck. In my school, when you're a scholarship kid, you had to serve the other kids lunch, uh, every day. And there was a lunch line. Yeah. Uh, it sounds so strange to me now, but back then it just seemed normal. Yeah. Scholarships. Right. Mm -hmm. Gotta earn. It was just a, it was just a on, on campus job. It was an on-campus job. Yeah. And and there's probably other jobs that could have had students do that are a little more dignified, but you know, we did it every day. All of us, we, we, we were happy because we got free lunch as part of it. And we put on our hairnets and we served the other kids lunch. But I would look to the left and right of me at the other scholarship kids. And I'd look across the plated glass between us at the rich kids. And I was like, you know, we're all the same. We're all... These kids are just as smart, just as hardworking, sometimes more (laughs) hardworking. And and to get the same seat at the table requires very different inputs because of opportunity. So I went through the rest of my life, you know, watching my mom get yelled at because of her accent and seeing that what separates us is opportunity, not talent. And kind of always realize that this is what I want to work in. This is what I want to spend my life in, creating communities and building organizations that make things more equal for people, um, make things more fair, make it so that everyone can thrive in their lives, regardless of where they were born and who they were born to. So I've had very different jobs in my career, but it was very much fomented there. So well said. Thank you. Man, that, that, was, that was really inspiring. And then, so that was the step two, scholarship kid. Yeah, the scholarship kid um, continued to college and grad school, was very, very lucky to get scholarships. And, it, I, you know, scholarships are, are, I'm so grateful to have the education I, I have had. And so many schools do offer generous scholarships, but it's another form of exceptionalism. You know, there's this fiction uh, writer, Gino Diaz, and he was giving a talk at the Strand Bookstore. And he was asked, like, how does it feel to be a successful Dominican-American author? And he said, I don't sit here thinking, like, I'm great because I made it. I think of everyone else who didn't make it. I think of the fact that I am representative of structural exclusion, that there are so many people who worked harder and, and longer than I did that didn't make it into this chair. And so often that is actually what I'm thinking of when when 
we get such joyful accolades as the one you mentioned at the top. And so that's that's a compulsion to try to change the system, even as we recognize we benefit from it. Yeah. In many ways, you're still standing behind the glass with the hairnet. <laughs> I, yeah, I'm, I'm much, no, I, I think the last 10 years of my life have been extraordinarily privileged. I could never say that that's where I am now. And I think the fact of the matter is most people don't get out of those situations and that's what we have to call attention to. So look, you're still, uh, by that, I don't mean to be in any way denigrating. I mean, you're still focused on serving, uh, only now, um, those on the other side of the glass aren't the privileged rich kids, right? Uh, it's a, it's a wholly separate, uh, community that perhaps from a place of privilege, we all have an opportunity and an, I'd, I'd argue an obligation to figure out how we can change the system. And that is what, uh, that's what you're doing at Solstice. I'm curious when it first became clear to you that there were these diverging interests in terms of the policy and the sort of the, the conceptualization of how we can sort of save our planet through clean energy and things like solar. And yet the, the disparity between the equity of who gets access to it, who can actually benefit from this privilege. It was definitely a journey. I was on this track to do, I was doing my, my dream job, which was working in policy in the Obama administration at the National Security Council, working on the Middle East during the Arab Spring. And we would go to Yemen, ride in these armored vehicles, look out the window, see that people were lined up waiting for fuel because terrorists had blown up oil pipelines. And it was in those moments where I realized that I didn't know anything about energy. We were spending all of our times talking about how to get a dictator out of power, but people's lives grinded to a halt because they couldn't get energy to power their daily lives. Businesses, schools, homes, they couldn't do anything. And so I realized that I need to go learn about this thing that fuels everyone's power. And I, so I left government, um, became a intern in another kind of renewable energy organization, and then uh, was working in Pakistan and India on off-grid solar with Acumen, when I realized that actually, why am I halfway across the world when back home in America, so few people have access to solar? And when I thought about it, I was like, why shouldn't someone like my mom, who is a low-income renter, get access to solar? And it was just around the time where community solar was starting to percolate as an industry. And so my co-founders and I said, let's start a company to make it more accessible to people, to the people that need solar savings the most, low income and communities of color who are historically excluded, frontline climate communities. Those folks are most affected by climate change and least likely to participate in the green economy. So let's make sure that clean energy is for everyone. It's for every community and it is a human right. And as we've talked about a lot here on Suncast, most recently in our community solar series, the broad category that even our federal government, thanks to programs through the Department of Energy and our mutual friend, Nicole Steele, are focused on is this category we call LMI, low to moderate income. Yet I feel like we do sort of paint with, paint with a broad brush that sort of community solar will fix things. And that's our, like, that's the channel to help those folks. Um, and I don't mean to be even dismissive of that because it's true that it is a great and powerful tool to decentralize and disconnect the need for the panels to be on your building or on your roof to be able to benefit from it or for it to come out of your own equity check to be able to afford it. Beyond that, there's, there are other elements of the equation of access to energy that we still needed to unlock. Can you talk a bit about the way that we currently, I'll say validate or value, evaluate whether or not someone is worthy of or able to afford and pay for energy at all, let alone um, solar energy and how you started, how your, you and your team started to think about rethinking that, that tool or that equation? Yeah. I mean, a lot of people in the solar industry know that in order to get solar access, you have to either pay for it upfront if you're putting it on your home or pay more for a utility green tariff or for direct renewable energy supply through a retail supplier. All of those are premium products. And so you either have to pay upfront or you can get solar financing, which is great, but you need a FICO score of 680 and above. 
And that's even true of getting access to most of the community solar projects in the country. Most developers and financiers require a 680 and above credits check, even if it's a product that's guaranteeing people savings. It's uh, That's the beauty of community solar, why you hear it used as one of the only tools in the toolkit for low-income inclusion is because it's one of the only tools that has a guaranteed discount. And you're right, there's no silver bullets. It's it, Community solar isn't a silver bullet. No, Nothing in climate is a silver bullet, but we need all of these solutions together. And we need more solutions that make renewable energy cheaper for customers because 60 to 70% of our customers say they need a savings to participate in green power. They cannot buy green power if it's a premium, particularly in this inflationary environment where energy costs are growing up, all costs are going up, people have less to spend. So we need to innovate more. But we also, on the product side, but we also need to innovate around distribution and finance. So the FICO score requirement that's required, well, we took a look into what goes into FICO scores. Sure, they're your destiny in America. My mom, when we were growing up, she used to say, just because we have a bad FICO score does not mean we're bad people. (laughs) And when I was a young adult in my 20s with a bad FICO score, uh, I also thought about that a lot. And you know, that's true of so many people who cannot get products and services because of FICO. FICO is seen as a objective measure of risk. And it is not actually that objective. It doesn't measure your cell phone history, your rental history, your utility payment history. So you can have a higher FICO score if you pay a mortgage and are 500,000 K in debt compared to someone who is paying the rental bill on time every month. So that means that we are systematically getting entire populations excluded from solar because of FICO. So we, with the Department of Energy, partnered to find a better qualification standard. And with their help, we did a lot of data studies. We looked at, does FICO actually predict whether you pay your utility bills on time? And it doesn't always predict it. For high FICO score people... Yes, it predicts you pay your bills on time. Mm-hmm, right. For low FICO score people, it doesn't necessarily predict that you pay your utility bills on time. They're not actually correlated. And so we proved that. And then we created a new score called Energy Score. And it's based on your utility repayment history and other demographic data that also plays into your FICO score. And it's shown to be more accurate at predicting who pays their utility bills on time. And it's more inclusive of low-income Americans that would have been locked out of the solar industry because of it. So we are so excited to expand access to millions more Americans to solar because of a new qualification standard. And we're excited to get more products out there that are guaranteed savings for people so that everyone can join the clean energy revolution, which we have to do in the next eight years. I'm curious in your preparation to be CEO of Solstice, not that you knew that's what you were doing. You went through a number of different stages of development, right? Mm-hmm. how to engage with people, how to think about policy, how to sell, how to message a product. What are the tools, maybe I just mentioned them, but what are the tools that, from your previous roles that really you feel like empower you now as a leader and entrepreneur to do the work you're doing as a CEO? The number one job that prepared me to do what I do today is being a community organizer with the Obama campaign. And that education came with a community organizing 101 training from Marshall Gans. So if you're a community organizer, you know the name Marshall Gans because he uh, is a he's a professor at Harvard, but more importantly, he was one of the most important community organizers for the farm workers out in California in his own backyard. And community organizing is age old. Uh, You can argue some famous religious figures were community organizers and people say Jesus was a community organizer. And the fact of the matter is community organizing is just about getting people to work together towards a common task. And sometimes that common task seems so unbelievably impossible because it is in the face of a Goliath-like challenge. And what community organizing and Marshall Gans taught me is that we are organizers whose job it is to go and find the people who are closer to the problem and closer to the ground 
and ask them what the solution should be. Meaning we give up control so that the the organization can scale th- through impact through the people on the ground. Our job is to empower them, to include them, and to respect them. People power is actually a renewable resource. Energy is contagious and people can do impossible things when they work together. And that's actually what we need to solve climate change too. I learned in the context of politics, but in it's the same thing with climate. RARE is a behavioral economics institute for climate. And they did all these studies that said, what causes people to take climate-friendly action? It's not whether they're a Democrat or a Republican. It's not whether they believe in climate change. It's whether they think everyone around them is taking action too. And that is the heart of the, the model and the insight of what we do at Solstice is that people will take action if they think everyone around them is doing it too. And people want to take action together. Thanks for the, the recommendation of how uh, that community building and leadership training for Marshall Gans was, was inspirational for you. I, I actually have found a series of lessons in the comments that I'll link to that are sort of a team building and folks can go and sort of learn more about Marshall Gans. I certainly am going to. And it's so interesting that the, I mean, the, the, the fundamental underlying uh, element, um, something early in your career that you learned has to do with communicating and building consensus and understanding and having empathy for others and putting yourself in their shoes, trying to, I mean, what a novel idea, right? That we build our products, <laughs> that we build our products with the customer in mind. <laughs> yeah. It ought to be mandatory for all entrepreneurs to go through a community organizing training because that is all like, that is what entrepreneurship is, is we marshal resources around an idea. And then we try to build a community that, that agrees that that idea needs to live. Mm-hmm. It actually makes me think of a question that um, we've discussed briefly, but I haven't uh, actually I haven't asked a lot in in recent interviews. Is there a career path that you always thought you would go down, but ultimately did not? It's a really good question tied to the Marshall Gans stuff because what Marshall Gans talks about often is how to tell your story in a way that builds relationships with others, and how to hear their story in a way that finds commonalities and. What I always wanted to do when I was a kid and I always thought I would do is be a journalist. Mm-hmm. I wanted to learn about other people's stories. I wanted to amplify their words. And I think at some point I'd still like to be a writer. I love writing. Don't get enough time to do it. I would love the opportunity to write more. And I also love photography. So at some point I'm going to be one of those crazy 80-year-old artists, I think. So Steph, if at any point, you want to be a contributor to Suncast, feel free. I've got about 500 episodes that still need a real professional writing touch. So <laughs> uh, you can just lean in. You're too prolific, Nico. <laughs> can't keep up. We can't keep up. <laughs> I'm saying. Yeah. Uh, you know, another thing that I wonder when I see someone who is prolific like you are and who has been, uh, you know, given numerous accolades, and yet we still know that, as the proverb says, Everyone gets broken. Some are stronger in the broken parts. And I think that there are so many examples that uh, of where folks kind of dismiss the, like that LinkedIn is your online sort of CV. It's your online representation. And like any social media channel, we build it to be the image or representation that we want the world to see of us. So I like to know what's not on your LinkedIn account and what did you learn from the experience nevertheless? So many failures are on, not on, on LinkedIn. And I think, think people sometimes forget that in order to succeed, you have to fail mm-hmm. a lot more than you succeed. Yeah. And I've often thought about creating a resume of failure so people can realize that it's not just uh, awards and, and all of that, which are very, very kind uh, for people to bestow on us. But it is actually the real learning doesn't happen when things are hunky-dory and going well. The real learning and humbling moments are when you're dragged across hot coals And you have to figure out uh, how to find a solution forward. And in those moments, you know, what's not on the LinkedIn? Things like when the pandemic hit in, in the beginning of 2020, our revenues disappeared overnight and didn't come back for another couple quarters. So that meant that we had to scramble to pivot our business model and how we reached people because we couldn't reach them in person in a room together anymore. So the thing that saved us was not me. The thing that saved us was our team coming together and realizing that nobody has been through this before. There's no playbook for this. 
And so we have to learn faster. We have to learn the fastest. The startups that are succeed out of the gate are not the ones that get the answer right on day one. That's pretty impossible. The startups that succeed are the ones that learn the fastest. And so my team is so, so wonderful. I'm so proud of them. And from their ingenuity about how to reach people differently, we actually doubled in 2020, despite a horrible two quarters. And then we 3.5x in 2021, thanks to their ingenuity. So what's not on the resume is every time I was saved by someone else. It was, what's not shown is when someone gave me a break, like my boss at the White House, who said, you know, you're an assistant. Your only job is to get me lunch every day and escort foreign nationals around so they don't steal stuff. But I think you can do more. So why don't you take on this extra work and why don't you take on more responsibility? He gave me a shot to, to, to get promoted. I have teachers that were the first ones to um, fund us when no one else funded us. When there are 30 people who said no at the beginning, they said, I'm going to take a chance on you. Like that's not on the LinkedIn. So, so that's, that's the, that's kind of what I think we should talk about more is every time we got saved by other people and that should show up in some form or fashion. Yeah. I love uh, the idea of a res resume of failures. And to your point, this idea just ages old of standing on the shoulders of giants, the cloud of witnesses that hold space for us to succeed. It's a part of the entrepreneurial journey that I love talking with folks about. And it just isn't headline worthy for most journals or journalist intentions. So it doesn't get clicks or click throughs and therefore it doesn't get written about as much and doesn't even get into podcasts because people want to be a news, an, an alternative news outlet, right? You know, I see Suncast as not a news outlet at all, but an education platform on uh, how to be uh, an entrepreneur in the clean economy. And, mm -hmm. you know, it's stories like this stuff that, that really, they, they keep me going. They, and they, I'm, I'm honored that we have a chance to communicate to thousands of listeners your story and to be able to talk about it with vulnerability and, and to open up about the, like the little stories that somebody on your team probably has never heard of you talk about your boss at the White House explaining your job as keeping dignitaries from stealing stuff. That's hilarious. <laughs> so you said in, uh, in a conversation that we had previously that there's nothing worse than unnecessary suffering. And that solstice exists to change that incentive structure. I think a question you probably get asked a fair amount, certainly I asked it at one point, is whether solstice is sort of at its core community solar company. Can you expound a bit on the business model for those who maybe don't understand what solstice is or how you're doubling revenues or what your target market is or, or how you use it as a, a vehicle to change incentive structures and uh, eliminate unnecessary suffering? Yeah, a couple ways. Our belief is that everyone should be powered by clean energy. We believe that everyone should access it. We don't think that community solutions are niche and local and small and slow. We think they're the only scalable force in solving climate change is community-driven change. Because when people tell their neighbors and their networks about something, they're more likely to do it. And when people do things together, that is the most scalable force in, in climate business. And so what we do and what we obsess about is how to make solar and clean energy so easy to use, so easy to sign up for that everyone can do it. On a very technical level, we are partnering with developers of community solar farms, and we are managing the whole customer experience for them for the life of the project, which is 20 plus years. So we're going out into communities and connecting them to local solar farms. And then we are managing the, the customer experience, you know, the crediting, the billing, the backend headaches of sometimes working with the data systems of various utility areas. And we are trying to make it easy for people to just participate in the clean energy economy, benefit from it, build wealth from it. So we're bringing the two sides of the solar marketplace together. Community solar is growing rapidly every year. A couple more states become community solar states. And we're also expanding our, our offerings to our own customers as they ask us, hey, we trust you. You've treated us well. Can you help us find other things that help us lead climate friendly lives? That's actually the path towards our growth. 
And we actually have a separate 501c3 nonprofit named Solstice Initiative that is entirely focused on low income inclusion in clean energy. They actually do co-develop low income projects. And we got into that because there were so few low income projects in our areas that we decided that we wanted to help communities lead the development process. Uh-huh bring community solar and clean energy to their own backyards kind and like under-resourced communities. community solar. Exactly. Yeah. Getting a community advisory board together and having mm. them have a say in how clean energy gets built and, and teaching other people across the country how to build community-led clean energy projects. Community organizing. Yeah. It's all about community. Uh, it's a big, one of our values in our company is, is trust. We talk about it constantly, like every day. Uh, and We can only move at the speed of trust. Trust is not entitled, it's earned. And you earn trust by treating people well, by advocating for the least among us to get access, and by partnering with only the highest quality providers. Steph, we've talked a lot about you and the accolades. You know, one of the things that's really important to bear in mind is that you are, you know, you've talked about your team, but you're not on this journey alone. You have a co-founder, I've mentioned that you're the co-founder of Solstice. Can you talk a bit about the journey of finding and working with a co-founder and a bit about Sandia, your your co-founding partner? Yes, Sandia is the best person I've uh, ever been able to work with. And she is strong, resolute, calm during a challenge. She is kind to people, but also just one of the hardest workers I've ever met in my life. Solstice would not exist without Sandia. And somehow we got so lucky that we both went to the same business school and we got connected, but in different years. And she somehow agreed to go from being a well-paid investment banker to earning nothing initially at Solstice. And then since then, we've been trying to get her paid what she's worth, but just an incredible human. And it goes to show that Entrepreneurship is often portrayed as a hero's journey, and it is not a hero's journey. It is more important who the first 10 employees are and if they will stick around and they feel like they're an owner as opposed to just a staff or employee member. So Sandia is uh, incredible, and she's backed by a, a bunch of people on our team who are very, very good humans who are excellent at what they do. And it's because of their grit and resilience that we exist today. Can you help those listening to differentiate how you as a founder think about the co-founder duality? Like who does what? Obviously, yeah. everybody does everything for a while, but where the strengths lie and how you settled into what you're good at and let her do what she's good at? That I think is the heart of a good partnership is just saying there's so much to do in the world. Let's divide and conquer based on what we are good at. So Sandy is responsible for all the internal operations at Solstice. So she is really the the head of making day-to-day decisions. I do more of the strategy and the external engagement, board management, fundraising. So we both will manage different members of the team. I'm more of the sales and marketing, and she's more of the operations and data side of the house. But the goal is in any partnership, in any co-founder relationship, to find what you each are great at and give each other the freedom and space to do that thing. Have you been curious about utility-scale storage? SunGrow's revolutionary liquid-cooled solution is revolutionizing the storage landscape. Its built-in DC-to-DC coupling, combined with other features like higher energy density and 3% slower battery degradation make it a robust solution that companies nationwide are choosing. You can learn more about this innovative solution by SunGrow by visiting mysuncast.com forward slash SunGrow. Hey, if you didn't catch this last Tuesday's Tactical Tuesday, episode 501, it is fire. Well, it's actually, how do we stop these fires? Battery fires, that is. Guest Catherine Von Berg from Simplify was on fire in her vehement defense of the kind of battery technology that is safe and non-toxic for our clean energy future. And she talks about UL9540 and more specifically UL9540A 
and why it matters to you, both as an industry participant or a consumer. If you haven't heard it yet, I would highly encourage you to go back and take a listen. Hey, pardon the interruption, but I wanted to just let you know how much of an impact you have on Suncast. Yeah, you. Thank you for clicking play. Without you, this show is just me shouting into the void. But there's still people who don't even know about Suncast. I know. I can hardly believe it myself. (laughs) But that's where you can help me yet again. There's a simple way that you can show some love and help others discover the show. If you cruise over to www.ratethispodcast.com forward slash suncast. I'd love it if you would leave a five-star rating and enthusiastic review. That's possibly the single kindest thing that you could do for me today. So if the show has helped, inspired, or even entertained you at all, I'd love it if you would head over to ratethispodcast.com forward slash suncast and give me a virtual two thumbs up. All right, back to today's episode. We talked a bit earlier about, and obviously you just hinted to sort of the underlying business model and energy score and how that obviously creates a different metric through which you can help underwriters and uh, financing partners get comfortable with the risk associated with uh, providing these assets and this infrastructure to, uh, to also, uh, we'll call a different category of buyer. There's this myth that low-income households either don't spend money or don't have money to spend, yet we see that routinely the, the, the folks um, in lower to middle income communities do have nice cars. They have uh, the latest iPhone. They clearly are able to uh, afford the things that are made affordable <laughs> for them through some, for, through various mechanisms. Um, can you talk a bit about the, how low income cons- customers can help grow business and how we can support this low income inclusion in a, and, potentially in a more broader category, as you said, than just solar decarbonizing their households. Absolutely. I think that there's so many myths about low-income inclusion. So one, you talked about risk. And when developers and financiers say, I can't you know, have this project be low-income, what they're really, that's coded for this population's too risky for me to take them on to my project because I'm afraid they're going to churn. I'm afraid they're going to default. And why take the risk when I can just sell to high income homeowners that I know will show up? And so that's done because there's this misunderstanding of risk that the the hypothesis is that low-income folks are too risky to serve. And we're trying to show that the perception of risk is greater than the real risk. And we're going to use data science and an actual quantifiable results to prove that. Energy score is part of that. The second biggest myth about low-income customers is that they are all the same. Low-income customers are not all the same. They are a variety of different types of folks and What we do at our own peril is treat them like a monolithic population because when then we say they're a monolithic population, we should only apply one solution to serve them. And that is actually not what's effective. What's effective is understanding who you're serving, understanding that low, low, low income people who probably should be on a low income energy rate, electricity rate, should probably be beneficiaries of LIHEAP and grants because no, through no fault of their own, they cannot pay their bills on time. Then you have folks more moderate income who are paying their bills on time, but don't have five FICO scores who are locked out of the market. And then you have high income folks who generally are the only ones really participating in the green economy. And if we assume that everyone has to get on clean energy in the next eight years to solve our climate crisis, then we have to in- increase access to the majority of Americans that are actually low to moderate income. There's this myth that LMI is a small population. It is not a small population. It's the mo- it's most of America. We forget that sometimes because the top 1% has 27% of the country's wealth. But in terms of pure numbers, LMI massively outweighs any other population, yet we talk about them, they're a niche, small, charitable group. And so if we're going to solve climate change, we've got to figure out how to democratize access to clean energy. And then lastly, a myth is around whether community solutions and low-income inclusion is enough to solve the climate crisis. 
the way we solve the climate crisis is by massively transforming our energy system. We need the majority of Americans to be a part of that. And those people, to your point, spend money on things. They buy things all the time. Why are we excluding them from the economy that is going to be the future of how we get power in this world? And we do this, at, again, our own peril. If we don't include them today, tomorrow we'll build more inequitable systems that reflect what fossil fuel industries do, and renewable energy will not be seen as better than the fossil fuel industry if it continues to exclude entire populations of people. The way to make renewable energy durable is to expand access, is to get community buy-in. A developer's clean energy project will not face community opposition if you go and talk to the community and get their input and get their buy-in. You won't have nimbyism if you do community engagement right. So there are ways to do this. There are ways to avoid suffering unnecessarily from low-income populations, but there are also ways to make clean energy grow faster because we are including them. It is good for business to include them. It's so interesting listening to you as well, thinking about, in particular, ESG-focused funds that are looking now and increasingly over the, as, as we see inflation and, and a flight of capital towards more hard assets and things like land and renewable energy development. The green economy is going to do better <laughs> in this um, high inflationary um, recession period than it did in the last five years uh, because these assets actually produce reliable returns. <laughs> but one of the things that you just said, it gives me sort of the conversation I want to have with my friends in the, in the financing sector around the ways that uh, increasingly the, the fund managers and the folks that energy score matters to are looking for differentiating flags, sort of markers, if you will, when they're doing their checklist of diligence of a company that will point to likelihood of success and, and scalability. And I wonder how many right now are evaluating platforms and evaluating developers on their level of community engagement, right? As a metric for success. None of them. <laughs> I can tell you. Yeah, we could. Yeah, no, you could. Uh, we could have a whole other conversation <laughs> about this. But, you know, we, when we think about some of the acquisitions, I won't name them, but if you, you can go do, <laughs> you know, just uh, solar company acquired by Shell, solar company acquired by LightSource, solar company acquired by EDF. And most, if not all of those platforms are, are PowerPoint pipelines. They mm. don't have uh, rights of way. They don't have queue positions. They have developers saying, I think we can probably develop 10 megawatts over here and 100 megawatts over there. And all, almost none of them, uh, and this is a, a broad blanket, sorry if this offends whoever's listening, almost none of them have an actual internal plan for how to ensure that the community cares at all, that there's mm -hmm. solar in their, in their backyard and, th and that they understand how it involves them. And uh, I think that you're right. Like that it, it is, it is in many, in many ways, it's, it is just incredulous to believe that we would be so against the Keystone pipeline and yet still like go into those same neighborhoods and not give any announcement that we're going to build a way bigger eyesore from their perspective and occupant of their land for the next 30 years without engaging them. And yeah, I think the ESG funds should really care about that. I agree. One of the most disappointing parts of raising money as an entrepreneur in the past few years was I get asked multiple times about our total addressable market. Not once do I get asked the question, how do you reach communities, you know, authentically and, and with quality and how, and do you treat your employees well? Are they happy? Nobody asks me that when I raise money and I wish they would because we that's so much of how we run our organization is caring for the people who are our stakeholders our, and our stakeholders are not just our investors, they're important stakeholders, but our customers treating them well, our employees treating them well, that is incredibly important too. I'll give you a very concrete example of how we are able to help a developer get more business because of community engagement. So in New Jersey, when the community solar program opened, it was a application and, you know, you had to put in your application and depending on different things got different points. And if you got community support letters, you got more points. And so we went out uh, with one of our developer partners for them and we did exactly what you're talking about. We went out and told people, hey, there's we're going to turn this brownfield, which is polluted 
super fun site into a clean energy project. And it's going to help the community and community members are going to be able to benefit from it. And through that, we got the community to support the project. And so they actually won the lottery based on getting so many points for community engagement. And so policymakers can incentivize that through rules like New Jersey, but also we can also get developers better business because not only are we getting communities engaged on the project and supportive of the project, but we can also identify new sites because we're in the community. People come to us all the time and say, I have a site that could site solar, I think. Can you help me get connected to a developer to put new projects here? So there is so much benefit from doing it. It's not just the right thing to do. It is also the smart thing to do. Steph, you have had such a prolific career already and you've got so much more to do. I wonder when you, when you take stock, when you think back on the people who moved the needle for you, you mentioned Marshall Gans and how important that course was. Who were the mentors in your career that really moved you to the next stage, right? Um, so you, you mentioned your boss at the White House. You mentioned Marshall Gans. Who else stands out to you? Maybe they're in renewables. Maybe it was a different life experience. I mentioned earlier that we've gotten by with the help of our friends. And so there are a number of people who are our first supporters and they didn't need to be supporters, but they just believed in us before anyone did. One of them is Jacqueline Novogratz, who is the founder of Acumen and is an investor in Solstice uh, and, and her husband, Chris Anderson, who runs, runs TED. The professor of entrepreneurship at MIT led our first round and that made, once you have a lead, it makes fundraising much easier. So that helped a lot. And, you know, there's a lot of great mentors I've had in the energy space. I think of Yoav Lurie and Justin Siegel over at Simple Energy. Those are great, great founders. I met them through the Techstars program, which we both did. And Techstars has this philosophy of giving first so you give first without regards for what you're going to get in return. And they did that for me, giving me advice. Same with Danelle Barrett at Block Power. These are folks who have been super supportive for many years and they give before they take and they take advantage of their privilege by opening up doors for other people. And that's exactly the kind of founder I aspire to be as well. And one last quote from Jacqueline Novogratz. She always quotes the Rumi poem, that says, out beyond ideas of wrongdoing and right doing, there is a field. I'll meet you there. And it is the opposite of what our political environment right now is, is a lot of people saying, I'm right and you're wrong and I can't talk to you because of it. And it's also why I think we can't solve climate change faster through policy. And so this idea of there is a field and there is no black and white. We are all just human and I will meet you there. I will find a solution with you is how we, I think, start to turn the page on some of our most intractable issues. I love it. I really hope to have Jacqueline on sometime. She's such an inspiration. And you brought up something that is normally in our, our queue and I had deleted it, but I'm going to circle back to it given the obvious connection you just made. I know that you have spoken on the TED stage. Uh, I'll link to the fearless risk-taking uh, notes from the TED Women 2017. So I was going to skip it, but I'm curious, if given a chance to speak on the big TED stage, what would your TED talk be about? I think at this very moment, it would be about how in clean energy, we talk about that subsidy is a dirty word. Everyone's really afraid to talk about any program or product that depends on subsidies. and. I would like to reshift how we define subsidies and how we define wealth. Wealth is not money. I will say it again. And this is something I believe that maybe few people believe, but wealth is not money. Wealth is relationships. And wealth is the knowledge in your head. Wealth is what people cannot take away from you once you have a downturn in the stock market. And basically how we define subsidy as a bad word is just so twisted and backwards. We have to think about what is worth putting our investment into, what is worth putting our time into. And sometimes that requires subsidies. We don't solve justice and equity using the market alone. The market has many market failures. I run a 
business. I believe in business fundamentals. You have to be profitable. You have to keep growing. But I don't believe in this idea that that we solve our intractable social issues through the market alone. And so we need to have money go to under-resourced places through no fault of their own that have no capital in order to solve some of the inequities in society. And so it's a good thing when we subsidize renewable energy because renewable energy needed to be subsidized and continues to need to be subsidized. And why do we not talk about the hundreds of billions of dollars in subsidies that continue to go to the fossil fuel community. And most Americans don't know that. So I would talk about how subsidy is not a bad word. It shows what we care about, shows the world that we want to build. And we should put our money behind the world we want to build. And, and we as a climate community, as a clean energy and solar community, should be more frank about how some of these things require money. And that's okay because we're solving climate change and we need to change incentive structures for why people are behaving the way they are today in order to build the world that we're trying to get to tomorrow. Steph, you are a very learned person. You've been through a lot of opportunity where you were forced to read. And I presume that you've carried on the tradition of sort of desiring to read um, and find resources to be a continual infinite learner. I believe that leaders are readers and I'd love to know is there any particular author or book that has made uh, a definable impact in your life? And maybe you recommend it to your team or to others who want to be mentored by you? The book I turn to in hard times is mm. Viktor Frankl's Man's okay. Search for Meaning. Yeah. And in pr- pr- moments of failure and moments where it doesn't seem like there's a clear path forward, when the work is really hard because there is no playbook, I try to remember what he says, which is that between stimulus and response, there is a space. And in that space is our power to choose our response. And in our response lies our growth and our freedom. And so if someone can come to that conclusion, living during the Holocaust, having lost all members of his family, being alone in a concentration camp, certainly I can take the privileged challenges I have and, and carry that lesson forward too. It's one of my favorite books and quotes. It's one of the ones that I recommend the most myself. Nice. Yeah. So few people on this podcast have recommended that book and none of them, you know, all, I always, when someone brings up Viktor Frankl, um, the point that you just made for me was the, it's the anchor, it's the stake through, uh, through which every other sort of penetrating idea of that book is driven home. Did you also know that he had the chance to leave Vienna? And do you, do you know that story? No. So he had the chance, he had a visa to go teach in America and he was going to take it and leave Vienna and escape the Holocaust. And, um, and he went and went to his parents to tell them that he was leaving to go to America. And that day, one of their local temples had been blown up and the tablets that had featured the 10 commandments one of his parents grabbed it in the rubble and brought it home. And the one, the piece of rubble that he had seen when he went to see his parents said, honor thy father and thy mother. And so in that moment, he decided not to leave Vienna and he got stuck there. And as a consequence of that, went to a concentration camp, lost his whole family. And, and so he had the chance to leave and didn't because he did the right thing. And it took him on this very different path, which I think is such a remarkable story about him. Yeah. Thank you. I feel in particular in this interview that there are seven, eight, nine more interviews of content that that we can dig into. Um, I love when I can have a conversation where there's still unexplored avenues because it also means that we're going to have many more fruitful conversations. I look forward to it. Uh, As we wrap, I have a, a couple more questions. So is there a particular habit or consistent practice that you've cultivated that I like to say gives you leverage, something that helps make life easier or at least focuses your energy and attention. Actually, something pretty recent for me is sleeping a normal amount every night. And my family has this torrid relationship with sleep. We are mm-hmm. all insomniacs. It's partly genetic uh, as proven by science, but but mostly the practice of forcing myself to sleep every day and and turn off the computer, even if there's more work to do. and 
the practice of moving my body one hour a day is the only way that I can sleep consistently at the same time every day. So being outdoors as much as possible and renewing my own energy through being in the outdoors with people that I love is really the, for me, the apogee and the best life gets. I love it. Um, what's the time that you target to go to sleep? These days, it's actually by 1130. And previous to the last few months, I had spent more nights in my life uh, sleeping after 2 a.m. than before midnight. So I can identify. This is a big change for me. Yeah. Have you ever um, read Michael Bruce's book on chronotypes and the type then like studied the kind of uh, sleep pattern? No, but I've read The Science of Sleep by I think Matthew. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That one really changed how I thought of sleep. Yeah. So there's an importance in sleep, but there's also recognizing your particular chronotype, which suggests the amount of time you need and like how, how you sleep. Mm. Like dolphins are diurnal sleepers. I don't know if you do that. They actually only sleep with half of their brain because they're swimming. Huh. And anyway, there's, there's four different chronotypes. And so I think that's one thing that people miss out on is there's one thing of recognizing the importance of sleep, which is critical. Uh, and I couldn't yeah. agree with you more. And I similarly have a tour relationship with, with sleep. I love that you've characterized it as more nights than and I would say probably for me, it's more nice after midnight, but certainly the number when folks say like, what's the hardest thing about building Suncast? It is recognizing that most of the work I've done that is meaningful and that people congratulate me for was done after 10 PM. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I'm a night person too. I, my, my head gets alive at 9 PM. My too. wife says like, she'll see this happened to me last night. She'll see that spark. And she's like, should you really need to go lay down? She goes, if you go yeah. sit down in your office right now. I won't see you until three in the morning. You know, I know that a lot of folks are going to want to connect with you. Where do you like to be found? What's the easiest way for folks to kind of get to know who you are, but then also to reach out and connect with you if they'd like to? Yeah. On a personal level, I feel like I connect with people mostly on LinkedIn or actually Instagram too. My Instagram's all on my LinkedIn if you want to see that. And if you want to get on a wait list for a clean energy or community solar project, find us at solstice.us and signed up. If you're a municipality, a corporation or a real estate organization, we'll connect you to clean energy projects. And our goal is to connect community institutions and organizations to clean energy. So if you develop solar and want to reach communities, definitely reach out to us too. Just want to say for those, obviously we'll link to all of this, but if you are on mobile and you want to just jump over, we'll try to link them in the description, but Sky Spears is the Steph Spears on Instagram that you'll want to find, S-K-Y-S-P-E-I-R-S. And Steph, let's end as we always do with a bold prediction. What one thing do you see happening in the market that maybe nobody else is tracking? What is in your crystal ball? We are going to build a clean energy constituency where a lot of people participate in clean energy and thus are more aware of policy changes. And people are going to realize how their shower uh, gets hot and how their air condition turns on in, in, in more complicated ways in the next decade. People are going to learn more about carbon credits and RECs, renewable energy certificates, and they're going to want to align with companies that are creating additionality, not just greenwashing and giving tired old wrecks to, to new people. People are going to demand that companies do the right thing for the environment, for their customers and their employees. As we see this unfold, we'll certainly be tracking and talking about it here on Suncast with the illustrious CEOs and founders of the industry like you. Steph Spears is co-founder and CEO of Solstice, and it has truly been a genuine pleasure. Thank you for your generosity today and joining us here on Suncast. Thanks so much, Nico. Wow. All right, Solar Warrior. I'm still basking in the afterglow of what I feel was a deeply insightful and even um, philosophical at times conversation that gave me tactical sort of anchors to think about being an entrepreneur and the, the relative value of the work that we do, not just for ourselves and our families, but for the community around us. And I hope that that's true for you as well. I hope that you're as excited after listening to this as I am and that you've gotten tools in your tool chest to go out and fight the good fight alongside the rest of our solar warriors. If you're eager to keep learning, well, we've got a ton of links and even a video to the what I mentioned, Steph's, um, her TED Talk over on our resources page, uh, also known as show notes. You can find that along with the social media links for Steph and book recommendation, Victor Frankel's Man Search for Meaning at mysuncast.com and you just click on the show notes page. 
since I know that you're going to be hopping online, and I'm grateful for that. I would like for you to take one more opportunity to help share our work with the, with the world. And you can do that in one of two ways. You can find our LinkedIn post if that's where you tend to engage in social media and engage with that. Tell us the, what you learned and, and hopefully share it along with your community because that helps others find us there. Or you can leave us a rating and review, a five-star glowing rating and review, if you would, if that's exactly how you feel about the show. And you can do that easily, easily by going to ratethispodcast.com forward slash suncast. And it means the world to us because it helps others find us the same way you did. And they can, uh, we can encourage them along their career and business growth path the same way that you have been nurtured and nourished today through this conversation with Steph Spears. Each and every week, I hope you'll come back. We have Tuesdays, which we call Tactical Tuesdays, that are short-form practical conversations about how to build your career or your business. And then Thursdays like this with Steph, where you can go deep with an entrepreneur that is worth uh, knowing and, and admiring and learn how they've built their career and what you can learn from it in so doing. I want to thank our sponsors who believe in this platform and want to help you listen for free each and every week. You can learn more about them and their offers by going to mysuncast.com forward slash sponsor. And that's also how you could learn how you could partner with Suncast to tell your story and to communicate with our community of solar warriors and clean tech champions twice a week, each and every week. Remember, you are what you listen to. Thanks again for showing up, Solar Warrior. It's half the battle. <laughs>